The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. This morning we're in John chapter 8, and we're going to begin in just a moment with verse 31. Um, it's interesting because we're talking about bondage and freedom this morning. Bondage or slavery and freedom. And you all bear witness that there seems to be a universal pull toward freedom that goes all the way back to our first parents in the Garden of Eden where God created humankind with a freedom, even the freedom to disobey, which you know the tragic story of Adam and Eve. But freedom is in our spiritual DNA, and yet the concept of freedom from God's perspective, I believe, is grossly misunderstood. And as a result of that misunderstanding, this section of scripture that we're going to cover this morning includes one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. One of the most misappropriated verses in all of scripture. For a matter of fact, I heard it misappropriated just this week in a political context. And I'm referring to verse 32 where it says, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you or make you free. You see, the truth referred to here is not, not mere knowledge of facts or information. It's not about self-discovery or uncovering conspiracy theories. That's not the truth referred to here by Jesus Ultimately, this truth is divine. The truth is about a person. Also, the freedom that is mentioned in verse 32 transcends. It goes beyond our earthly experiences. You see, you can be free from poverty and still be a slave. You can be free from political oppression and yet remain in spiritual bondage. You can have the means and the ability, and some of us do, to live life any way that you deem fit and still, still remain a prisoner of a self-imposed bondage. So this section, when it talks about freedom, when it talks about truth, when it refers to slavery or bondage, it means so much more than how the world defines that single verse. So this morning I want us to walk through 
these verses. We're going to start with verse 31. We're going to go through, by the grace of God, verse 47 this morning. And I want us to unpack what Jesus has to say about truth, about slavery, bondage, and about freedom. Are you all ready? If you're ready, say amen. Because this is the word of the Lord by God's grace and mercy. It starts with verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, you'll notice in verse 30, uh, again, that's 31. In verse 30, there are crowds following Jesus. The crowds contain both critics. And in this case, there are some who begin to believe on Jesus. Now, Pastor Colin made a great point in Bible study this morning. This doesn't necessarily mean that they are born again. That is to come later after the cross. But they believe in Jesus. These are believing Jews. So Jesus is saying, he's speaking to this crowd, it contains critics and believers, but he focuses in on the believing Jews. And here's what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, that word abide in Greek, it means to continue or to remain in the teachings of Christ. So he's essentially saying, if you abide or remain in my word, my teachings, then you are true disciples. True disciples abide in his word. And we've seen that thematically now for some weeks True disciples are committed, we abide, we reside in the word of God, in the truth of God. And that is a byproduct, that is a character quality of true disciples. It is also the road to spiritual growth, abiding, residing in the teachings of Christ. And again, we've talked about that. And we continue to underscore that truth. But I want to draw your attention to something. He did not say, if you abide, that you become disciples necessarily. Because the idea here is to obey, to enact the scriptures, to live it out. And Jesus is not suggesting that you are saved by works You're not saved by abiding, and James says it as well. James says faith without works is dead. So here's how that works. Your works are the evidence or the byproduct of genuine faith. So genuine faith produces works of righteousness, works of surrender, works of commitment To the Lord. So we are not saved by abiding, but true faith always, always should lead to obedience. Very important. Look at verse 32. And here's that verse. And, so he continues the thought, you will know the truth, aletheia in Greek. You will know the aletheia, the truth. This is divine truth. 
This is absolute truth, truth that is always true, truth that leads to salvation. You will know the aletheia, the truth, and the truth will set you free. That word free there means to be liberated from dominion. We get the word dominate from the word dominion. So Jesus is essentially saying here that the truth is going to free you. God's truth will set you free, liberate you from that which dominates you. That which holds dominion over you, enslaves you. That's what he says here. Now, interesting, if you have your Bibles, John 14, 6, quickly turn there. It's not on the uh, PowerPoint. John 14, 6. I want to show you something that helps shed further light on the true interpretation of this verse, verse 32. Here's Jesus once again referring to the crowd about himself. John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to him, to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, let me read you something in Greek. Ready? I am the way and the Aletheia, same exact word in Greek that you find in verse 32. You will know the Aletheia, the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus later on here says in John chapter 14, I am the Aletheia. I am the truth. So essentially the ultimate reality about that verse is the truth is A person. Jesus is pointing to himself. You want liberation from that which dominates you, that which enslaves you. Come to me. I am the truth personified. The word of God became flesh. And dwelt among us. All of the Bible, listen, Old Testament to New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, all of it points to Jesus. All divine truth that we have ultimately points to Jesus. He is the truth ultimately that sets you free. Verse 33, look at this which is breathtaking, says, and they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? That is an amazing verse because it is untrue and absolutely delusional. If you know anything about Jewish history, You know, it is a history marked by slavery and bondage. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, 
And interestingly enough, in the very context of what they're saying right here, right now in this passage, they are under Roman rule. It's amazing. Sin has a way of doing this, deluding us. And we can't perceive in the natural man the things of the spirit. And these guys are looking to argue with Jesus. They're not really looking for answers. They're trying to corner him. Their heart is bent towards sin. And it shows up time and again. So here these folk are. They're in slavery, yet they're claiming to be free. In bondage, yet claiming to be free. It sounds like really, you know, the epitome of self-deception. And in my own walk in life, how many folk have I come upon who are in slavery, in bondage, yet claim to be free? Beyond their political bondage, their political slavery, these folk are dominated by an even crueler slave master. And Jesus, as he always does, zeroes in in great force and power. In verse 34, look what he says. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, every time you hear that, we've talked about it before, when Jesus says truly, truly, it's like highlighting it, underlining it twice. You need to pay attention to this. You know, in the classroom, this would be critical content I've said before. As somebody who's a teacher, and by the way, God bless all of my fellow educators who are heading back into the fray starting tomorrow. Amen. Pray for us, if you would, in the public and private world. Pray for us that we would be able to glorify Jesus. So truly, truly, he says, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is the ultimate form of slavery. Slavery to sin. And basically, he says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And that verb there, practices, it's, a, it's in the present tense in the Greek. And here's what that means. It means that it's a habit. It's habitual. It's not a once and done deal. It's ongoing. It's a continual action. So he's basically saying everyone who continues, who practices sin, it's a habit ongoing, you're in bondage to it, is a slave to sin. Here's a question. Who among that audience was not a practicer of sin? Not a one. Just him, just Jesus. In the audience that he was speaking to, there was no one. He understood that. Look at verse 35. 
The slave, remember the context, he's talking slavery to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So you have a slave and you have a son and you have a house, really the household of God we're referring to. So if the son, verse 36, sets you free, you are absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, free. Free indeed, he says. If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. So a slave to sin, he says, has no long-term security in the house of God. He can be cast out because of his sin. And we know our God is holy. And no flesh is going to glory in his presence. That's what the scripture says. He's a holy God, an all-consuming fire. But he also says here, but the son abides in the household forever. So listen. Our place in the family of God, in the household of God, is directly related to our relationship to his son. Jesus says you can't set yourself free from the slavery to sin, whom the son sets free. We need the son To set us free. We need Jesus in order to experience true freedom from the dominion of sin. There is a freedom that only Jesus can provide. Only Jesus. We may look and search and claw and scratch looking for quote-unquote answers, but there's only one. There's only one liberator, and that is the son. Look at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Here Jesus is acknowledging that these folk are Abraham's descendants biologically, But Abraham was not their father in a spiritual sense. Because unlike Abraham, God's word has no place in them. So though they're biological descendants of Abraham, they are not children of Abraham. And we're going to see that in the next several verses. They sought to kill God. Abraham, by faith, embraced him. Look at verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard, uh uh-oh, from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, notice 37, its offspring or descendants, Here now in verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, it's a different word in Greek, you would be doing the works Abraham did 
Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. You could even underline your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Well, most commentators feel in verse 41, that little reference to we were not born of sexual immorality. Many commentators believe that that was a stab at Jesus. Remember, Jesus is born of a virgin. So they're taking a slice. They're trying to undermine the credibility of Jesus. We were not born of sexual immorality like you were. It's essentially the attitude there. It says, we have one father, even God. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So now they're claiming that God is their father. Earlier, they incorrectly stated that they'd never been in slavery. Now they're claiming that God is their father, which is the very thing that they use to justify their persecution of Jesus. They said Jesus claimed that God was his father. And that justified their desire to kill him. Look at John 5 in verse 18. Again, it's not going to be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They're hypocrites. They're claiming that God's their father. And they're using that to justify themselves. Jesus makes that same claim and they want to kill him. Again, what sin does, how it impacts our thinking, we rationalize, we come up with excuses. There's another principle here that I need to say. I believe the Lord gave this to me. And maybe it applies to someone in this room. It's very clear here that your human gene pool, your ancestry, does not determine your standing with God. I'll say it again. Your human biology, who your biological parents were, or who you're descended from, has nothing to do with your standing before God. You are not right with God because your parents were believers and you were raised in the church. It doesn't transfer over. By the way, the inverse of that is true. And this really helps me because you're not necessarily trapped forever in a cycle of despair and separation from God 
because you had parents who mistreated you or who weren't parenting you properly. You're not doomed because of that. Your standing with God has to do with your relationship to his son, Jesus. Your identity is in Christ. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, this is a conditional statement, if God were your father, this is extremely interesting, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. I'm reading the ESV. You are of your father. Now he identifies their spiritual father, the devil, Lucifer. In your will, this is amazing. Your will is to do your father's desires. You can underline that as well. He, meaning Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here's an interesting principle. You are a slave or a servant to what you love. You are a slave or a servant to what you love. Usually this principle applies where your heart is, the rest of you, it's going to kind of follow. He's saying if God were your father, if you were born of God, you would love me. The evidence of that would be that you would love me. Interesting. But on the contrary, since they're under the authority of Satan, who Jesus refers to as their father, it says it's interesting. Their will is to do Satan's desires, which in the immediate context is to kill Jesus. But this idea extends way beyond this event. They are slaves to Satan. They're dominated by hearts that love sin. Their will is to do the will of their father. If you love, if you are born of God, you will love me. We're dealing with issues of the heart. These folk are under the irresistible seduction of a rebellious fallen, sin-sick heart. Verse 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God, of God. Hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If you were of God, you would desire the things that God wants, but you don't. But you don't. 
you cling to your own bondage. And this is the sin, the slavery to sin, that cripples so many today. You see, sin, listen, sin is more than an action. Sin is a disposition of the heart. Let me say it again. Sin is so much more than an action. It is a disposition of the heart. So what is the way to freedom? How can I run from myself? Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm going to offer you in the last few minutes of the message three ways that the cross of Christ addresses that question. Three ways that Jesus and him alone can address the issue of the enslaved heart. Number one. Jesus came, it's clear, on a mission to free us. Jesus, Jesus is the great emancipator. Look at Luke 4.8. Here's Jesus in a synagogue embarking on ministry. opens up the scroll, and here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me or anointed me, excuse me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, what's it say? Liberty to the captives, freedom to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty. There it is again. It's mentioned twice. Liberty, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The Spirit of God is in the emancipation business. He does a work that you and I can't do. We can't muster up. Doesn't matter how hard you try. The Spirit of God produces liberty. 
So that was the first important point, that Jesus came on a mission to free us. We're freed by the Holy Spirit. He is the great emancipator. Number two, Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. Look at Romans 5, 9. It says, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, referring to the cross, justified, some say it's like just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Much more shall we, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So when Jesus went to the cross, he freed us, those who believe, those who place their faith in him, are freed from the penalty of sin. Look at Galatians 5.1. For freedom, and in Galatians, Paul is speaking specifically to a church that has been taken by a false teaching. There are Judaizers in the church, and they're trying to put people under the law basically saying that the cross wasn't enough to satisfy the wrath, the justice of God. That you had to add works to what God had done in Christ Jesus. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit. And again, in the Greek, that means become entangled again to a yoke of slavery. Basically, what Paul's saying is, look, at the cross Jesus addressed the penalty. You can't fulfill the law in your own self. That's been done through Christ. So don't put yourself back under, entangle yourself up in a works-based faith, our so-called faith. And listen, this is something I believe God gave me. So please hear me. In the, in the spirit of desire just to love Jesus and for Jesus to love you through me. Listen. God isn't punishing you anymore. Your punishment, all of it, all of it, was placed on Jesus for those who believe. So stop punishing yourself. God isn't punishing you. Now he disciplines because he loves us, but he doesn't punish us. You've been freed from that. Look at Galatians 5.13, just a few verses later. says, you were called, your calling is to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is amazing because what Paul's saying here is we are now freed to serve. You and I have been freed to serve, but I want you to hear this. And again, I believe this is for Somebody, God in his sovereignty, I believe, 
gives us stuff, knowing who's going to be in the place, and, and he wants to speak to hearts. So here's what I believe God gave me. Listen, you are now free to serve, not in order to earn God's forgiveness or to pay him back, but you are free to serve as an act of loving worship. And I've fallen into this. I'm paying God back. And that's why I'm serving. That's why I'm out here doing ministry, to pay God back. Listen, it's been paid. There's nothing to pay back. Jesus, do you hear me? Do y'all hear me? Jesus, for those who believe in him, who've placed their faith in him, Jesus paid it all. Your account has a zero. There's nothing to pay. Jesus has done it. So you're not paying God back. If you look at that verse... Look at it. It says, but through love, serve one another. See that? Your motive isn't the sense of guilt that I now have to work my way to somehow even the uh, deal, the tally. Thank you, Pastor Colin. It's great to have another preacher in the front row who can help me out when I need it. It's been paid. So Jesus came on a mission to free us. Jesus saves you from the penalty of sin. He's not punishing you anymore. You can't pay him back. You're called to serve out of love. It's a beautiful thing to be freed to serve, not because I have to, because he's going to, you know, somehow he's, he's taking, he's counting in heaven. There's an account that I'm trying to fill in. That's not the motive anymore for those who are redeemed. Because we love, we love him. And by extension, we love his people and we love his work. And lastly, or thirdly, listen, this is so important. Jesus saves us and God gave us grace from the power of sin. So the penalty, the power of sin in God by his spirit enables us to love him. Look at Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to what? To nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So hear me. At the moment of conversion you receive, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The moment you accept Christ, the spirit of God dwells in you and you receive a, a new nature. It's instantaneous. It's called the rebirth. Jesus talked about it with a John in John three with Nicodemus. You must be born again. So when you've placed your faith in Christ, the spirit of God dwells in you. You're born again. You still have the capacity for sin so you still have the capacity for sin, 
but we now have the ability to resist sin. And most importantly, we have the desire to resist and to live godly. That desire comes from the new man that God plants in us by his spirit. In other words, you have a new supernatural, supernatural love for God. Whereas prior, that wasn't there. You couldn't muster it up. That heart was, as we saw, Jesus interacting. That heart was darkened. But by the grace of God, the moment of faith, you have a new nature, a new heart. A heart of flesh, no longer a heart of stone. And you have the capacity now to seek after, to love God. You know, there's an old Christian musician, Keith Green, from the 80s and late 70s. He had a song, You Put This Love in My Heart. And I love that song because the song is true. Look at verse 7. And we're almost finished. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer. I love this. No longer has dominion over him. (coughs) For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves. You must consider yourselves dead to sin, dead to sin. Sin isn't your master. You're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For those who place their faith in the work, the gospel of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection. So when you're born again, God gives you a new heart that is no longer dominated by a love for sin, no longer in slavery, it says, to sin, but alive to God in Christ. This is a miracle. It's a miracle of grace that, as I said earlier, it happens the moment you place your faith in Jesus, but listen, the old sin nature remains in a daily struggle ensues and God develops your new nature, enabling you and I to grow into more holiness by giving us trials and challenges and by through the means of grace, through his word, through worship, through fellowship, through service. He develops us through time by the spirit. It's a continuous process. It's called sanctification. And again, the new nature is battling with the old nature, the flesh, the Bible refers to it as. But we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. Hear me. In Christ Jesus, your primary identity Your primary identity is no longer sinner. Here's what the scripture says. In Jesus, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. 
I know that blows my mind because I know that in my flesh there is nothing good. I understand I can do nothing good. But through Jesus, see, that's the whole idea. It's not about me and what I can do. It's about what he did. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Doesn't mean that you no longer sin. It means that you are no longer under the bondage of sin. And some of y'all, that may be a struggle for you to understand, so I'm not going to read it because we don't have time, but write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 13, it essentially says, with every temptation, there's a way of escape. So you don't have to habitually practice sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin as a believer. Again, it doesn't mean that you don't sin. What I'm saying is Jesus sets you free. And you can access by abiding, by relying, by frankly preaching the gospel to yourself. Victory over sin. As you grow in love for Jesus, the things that displease him become repugnant to you. The things that glorify him become the most satisfying in attractive pursuits in your entire life. I'll say it again. Listen, as you grow in your love for Jesus in sanctification, this work that God does in your life, for those who've received Jesus, who've been given a new heart, the things that displease him become repugnant to you, and the things that glorify him become the most satisfying and attractive pursuits in your life. And I'm closing, and if you'll look at Romans 8, you can write that verse down. It says, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. You thought the problem was that you didn't know what to do to save yourself. But the law came as a teacher, taught you what to do, and you still couldn't do it. You don't need a teacher you need a savior. You thought the problem was that you didn't know what to do to save yourself. But the law came as a teacher, taught you what you to do and you still couldn't do it. You need a teacher. All right, you don't need a teacher. You need a savior. Because we have a savior, we're no longer slaves. Let's bow our hearts. Worship team's going to come. We're going to conclude our service. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your scriptures, for your word. And I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, it would resonate in our hearts. God, that we have been set free by you. And we owe you, Lord, um, just our, our lives. But yet, Jesus, in your mercy and grace, you've paid, you've satisfied, paid our debt, satisfied justice on our behalf. and We can walk in the freedom that is your amazing grace in your holy name. Amen. Please stand.
So um, while Tom's up here, and because this is the precipice of another school year, um, I'm going to ask that um, all teachers on any level, um, if you would stand, please. Um, we want to commission you to your mission field. Uh, we know that um, that 82% of of anyone that's come to Christ, these percentages have been reinforced through Barner and other resources, that 82% of people that ever come to Christ do it before the age of 18. And so that means that you guys, uh, as teachers, are on the greatest mission field in our nation. And, uh, and this is frontline stuff. We're called to preach the gospel, to teach those the very things that Christ has taught us. And, uh, and as you go back, I know that you are not going back to students for the first week, but you're going back to prepare for students. And, uh, and we want to help to prepare you that way as well by praying for you. So um, I asked Tom a few weeks back if he would pray during this time, because if anybody can relate as a teacher to a teacher, it's a teacher. So, um, so guys, let's, uh, let's join our hearts together and ask God to protect, uh, to provide, to inspire, to give courage uh, to speak into uh, the lives of these students and see the gospel realized in teenagers and young people. Amen. If you're near a teacher, someone standing up, would you be so kind as just to put your hand on them as we pray for them today, maybe even gather around them, if you will. What a ministry it is to be able to really to care for God's babies, for the children. Lord, I, I thank you. We do so much for, again, for your mercy and grace. And I pray, God, for your anointing and your power to be upon the teachers in this room. Jesus, that you would help us to represent you, to represent your heart, to represent, Lord God, your truth to our students, to their parents, to our colleagues, to those in leadership. We ask, God, that we might be your hands and your feet, your love, Lord God, to our community. And, Lord, to these children, we pray in advance for our students that you would even now minister to them as they're preparing as well to come back to school, encourage them. And we thank you for open doors and opportunities, Lord. We ask, Holy Spirit, now, again, that you would fill us afresh Empower us to be your witnesses. And Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. And we look forward to the work that you'll do through us as we yield and submit to you your mercies, Lord God. Again, bless these families. Give us extra strength and endurance and patience and all the fruit of the Spirit. May it be birthed in us as we interact with the little ones, Lord God. Help us again to represent you, and to bring you glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.